So uh, let's get started with a real quick word of prayer, and then I'll turn it over to him. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful teaching that we receive in this church. Father, we thank you for our pastor, for his diligence in studying the word and, and bringing it to his flock. And we also thank you, Father, for men like Dr. House, who has uh, dedicated his life to studying the Bible and teaching us, uh, the sheep, uh, the word of God. And so, Father, we thank you for this time that we're going to have uh, listening to his presentation tonight. We pray for concentration and clarity, and uh, we pray all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Dr. House, it's all yours. Well, it's good to be with you again. Um, by the way, uh, you ought to go out and vote. You know, vote early and vote often. Uh, if you wonder about the, de- the degrees I have, I'm taking as many as possible. I'm hoping to be educated someday. And uh, you have to learn a lot along the way. Uh, I started teaching grad school when I was 24 years old. And I've never stopped. So... That's sort of what I've done in life, besides a few odds and ends things on the side. But I love teaching the Bible. I love teaching things about the Bible that relate to it. Um, And so that's why we've sort of done this archaeology thing. I had no idea, I mean, that that people would enjoy it that much, and I love teaching it. I love explaining things and putting things together. That's one reason I like to do tours. You know, I do tours to all the basic biblical lands, including Italy. Uh, all the Mediterranean, uh, you know, Egypt, all these other places. And uh, because there's so much to know and it makes sense of things. As you're reading the Bible, all of a sudden, if you've seen things and studied things, you think, oh, that's it. And just a little light comes on. And so that's what I'm trying to share with you as I'm working through these by showing you photos. Now, I want to encourage you again, those of you who uh, have not yet done it, be sure, and if you have an interest in something like this, be sure and get the House Visual Study Bible because it is the only one on the Internet. It's been checked thoroughly by people who know, and they say they check the top 100, and nobody is even close. So we're moving ahead. Uh, we've got the New Testament almost finished, and the Old Testament has already started up pretty big because of a major movement that's begun that is under undercutting uh, really the Bible in the name of uh, trying to understand what God is saying, and they're teaching in evangelical schools, but teaching things that were taught by people that were quite heretical a hundred years ago. So it's uh, I, I, dealt with, I dealt with several things in the first several chapters of Genesis just to get ahead of myself a little bit because of what's going on that. And right now I'm working on a couple of books with different scholars who are scientists, historians, philosophers of science, archaeologists, Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, New Testament, everybody. I'm working on a a couple of groups on two different books on this, trying to counter it. So uh, if you read the first few chapters of Genesis in the Study Bible, you'll sort of see some of the things on that. I put it ahead. Well, I had originally, when I worked on this tonight, I was doing archaeology in the lands of, and then I had uh, Syria, and I had Jordan, and I had Egypt, and I had a couple other places. I thought I'll just go ahead and finish that grouping, and next time I'll work on Paul's, uh, you know, work throughout uh, his travels. There's some fascinating things to talk about. And I want to do it expositionally in the sense of go to some major passages along the way as I talk about Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and, 
and Athens and explain things based on if you understand what we're, what I'm doing on the archaeology, then I can explain it better to you in the text. So we'll be doing that probably coming up here. I think I teach what this coming Sunday, it seems like. So, but tonight I just narrowed it back and said, okay, I'm going to only cover the land of Jordan and not all of it because there are many places in Jordan that are important. Uh, and if you've ever read uh, the biblical text that talks about uh, the young man that was healed of demon possession on the far side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, that has three different names that's been proposed in the manuscripts. And you'll see why there's a problem. Because one's called Gadara, one's called Gergesa, one's called Gerasa. And so in the manuscripts, <laughs> we're not really quite sure it looks like, but it, the, the preponderance seems to be, for many reasons, the one that is called Gergesa, called modern cursey. I'm not going to go into that. But the point of it is, but understanding that makes sense of some things. And when you go, and I'll show you these later, not tonight, when I show you exactly some of these sites where you can look down, you'll put it together and sort of open up uh, some things on the Scripture. And so tonight, though, we're going to just focus on Jordan and two areas. Uh, One is called uh, Tal Ahamam, or as viewed to be the site by many of the site of ancient Sodom. And the other one we're going to talk about is a major site that's a world-famous site. It even got some basic position of this in the world. Uh, I don't know what they call it directly, but it's the one that these the featured sites in the world to go to. And it's called Petra. So I'm going to move it both and uh, talk about some different issues on that. So here we go. This is going to be fun. I hope you enjoy I really enjoy these things. Um why the study of Jordan? That becomes the question. Why did I pick these two tonight among all the others? Well, it's composed of several different ancient people that are important in the biblical story. And um, you have the Ammonites, and we have what is called Amam Jordan. You've heard of that maybe. It's a major city. That's what you're talking about historically. They descended from Lot, and that's another issue. Then you had the Moabites. You're familiar with Moab. They, ver- they worshipped a god, uh, Chemosh, and they believed in child sacrifice. And, of course, Ruth came from there, who is in the line of David the king and then Messiah, we find out from Scripture. And the book of Ruth is a great book. I, don't, uh, I've, I have a book sermon I do on that. that is a, I really enjoy that sermon. It's a fantastic book uh, with some interesting information. But you next have the Edomites who were sons of Esau. So these people, like Lot and Esau, hung around. (laughs) And they have families. They didn't move off to other portions of the world. They stayed right about where they were, and they, from their families, had descendants that began to grow and grow. And then you have some that are more generalized that we would talk about. Uh, The Edomites, by the way, are connected to Petra that we'll talk about. And then you have Canaanites and Perizzites who are just... Uh, basically represent a lot of different different people. And these are the people, people probably of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll look at some of these in a moment. I'll show you a map here. Uh, I don't know if you can see this that well. But if you look at modern Philistia, if you look at Philistia, Hadrian, when he came into Israel and conquered Jerusalem, matter of fact, kicked all the Jews that he didn't kill, 
kicked them all out of Jerusalem. On pain of death, they could not come within sight of the city. And he made it a Gentile city, and there's a lot of things about that because of him doing it. But he changed the name Yerushalayim to Alia Kapitalina, which means the city of the family of Alia, his family. And that became Jerusalem for some time until obviously later on the Romans were defeated and uh, others came in like the Parthians and so forth and eventually the the Muslims came in. Uh, it it uh, lost that Gentile name, but there's a many artifacts there that are still from that period. And having said that, what one thing that Hadrian did, he took the name Philistia, the ancient enemies of the Jews, and purposely changed the area from Philistia to Palestina. That's where it started, the beginning of the second century. It went from Israel to Palestina, the ancient enemies who were the Philistines. So Palestina is a Romanization, the Latin of Philistia. And so you had people called Philistines in the Bible, like the giant that was killed by David and a lot of other people, who lived just on the coast, and they, um, they were called Palestinians <laughs> and out of Philistines. So that's what happened to all of this historically. And so what's interesting about it is that uh, when Arafat was making a big deal and trying to demonstrate the angel, uh the ancient nature of the Palestinians saying we have a right to the land because originally it was ours. (laughs) It really never was. If they claimed to come from the Philistines, then they were Greek and not Arab because all the Philistines were Greek. They were from Greek islands. So I don't think Arafat nor those Muslims that followed him, the Arabs, I don't think they were Greek and they didn't come on the coast of Israel. So it's amazing how people, you know, History is irrelevant. Facts are irrelevant. The important thing is a narrative that I want to push. And obviously, I don't allow any room for you to differ. <laughs> it's narratives where we're into a lot of things today instead of facts. But anyway, that's Philistia. Then you have the Phoenicians up north. And the Phoenicians, many of them went over to North Africa where we think of uh, uh, where Hannibal was and so forth when he came down in Central Africa in the north. Uh, certainly, they weren't... Uh, Arabs, they were not uh, Africans as we think about it. Uh, they really represented uh, more of a Semitic kind of view. And then you have Aram and Amman, and we've already mentioned uh, the Aram already, but Amman, uh, we have the uh, Ammonites that were from there. And then on down you have the Moabites. So these are the basic groups, the Arameans, the Ammonites, and the Moabs. And if you'll notice how they're connected to the Sea of Galilee above, some of them, not all, uh, and to what we call the Dead Sea. In the Bible originally, that was called the Salt Sea. And you can guess why. It was salty, <laughs> very salty. It became known as a Dead Sea because there's everything in there is dead. <laughs> so how the name changed, but it's the same place. And you can't do deep sea diving in the Dead Sea. You won't get very far down till it brings you back up. <laughs> And so uh, there's no fishing there allowed <laughs> because there's no fish. Now, you have uh, this, actually there may be fish because you have uh, the Jordan River comes into the Dead Sea or the sea, Salt Sea. Now, right to the left of the, the, the you, you notice the Sea of Galilee is at the top there, the, the, the uh, little sea there, 
about the size of a medium-sized Texas uh, lake, about that size. Uh, it's not really a sea at all. Matter of fact, I wish translators, when they translate, go to Israel and check out what things they're talking about. For example, uh, you'll have people that will say mountain for this thing, and you look, and it's a hill. It's, not, it's, it's certainly not a mountain. It's a bump. And, and other times they say, well, this is a sea, and it's not a sea at all. It's a lake. And yet that gets all mixed up because, for example, the Jews call it Lake Kinneret. They know what it is, Yom Kinneret. It's a lake. So the fact is, uh, as we try to be historically and, and linguistically correct, you move on down the, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee into the, what we call the River Jordan, which used to be called the, muddy, the mighty rushing Jordan, no longer, it's just a sea because both sides, Israel and uh, uh, Jordan, pump water out of it constantly. It's just, it just doesn't have the force it used to unless you get up very north where the sea comes out underneath the Caesarea Philippi, actually goes down into Tel Dan and there's a, just a rushing river, but it quietens up a while after it gets to the Sea of Galilee and slows down and goes through. These are just little tidbits you may or not want to know about them. But the fact is when you get the very tip of that little slipper, sliver of, uh, I'll try to do this. I'm, I'm almost afraid of this thing now. It's not responding at all, so I'm not afraid anymore. Okay. Uh, anyway, the very tip of that, that, that uh, blue, that river, that, or not river, but that lake, that is, in fact, the Dead Sea. Again, it's not a sea. But uh, nonetheless, the very tip of that to the left is the city called Jericho. Okay? To the right is something of substance that I want to talk to you about. Uh, I've been there a number of times to do excavation. Arena's been there with me two or three times, I think, already, hon, right? And it's an interesting place. Now, it's debatable. And so I want to give you uh, the view that I probably think is the most reasonable, based on certain reasons. Uh, but there are some who believe that a place at the very bottom of the Dead Sea, very bottom of the Dead Sea, below Moab, going down, that that's where the uh, city of Sodom was. Now, the problem with finding that view is it's not necessarily the best attested historically. People in the 19th century really thought it was at, at the top. Uh, after Albright, a very famous archaeologist came in. He declared it was a, he declared it was probably Sodom, and uh, and, and people have just sort of jumped on the bandwagon. And I have friends that hold that view, and that's very fine. And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. It's debatable. Um, but the fact is it's all under the, under the Dead Sea, so you'll never know or not unless you, you, know, unless you sort of uh, suck out all the water from the Dead Sea, you know, put a dam up the top, get all the water out, then go down there and do some archaeology for a few years probably, and maybe you'd find something. That that particular position is not one that I think is the best, re, you know, the most reasonable, but maybe it's true. I, I'm not dogmatic on that. Okay, so that gives you a look at what you're seeing, all right? You follow along with me? Now, the land of Jordan. First of all, let's look at the ancient city of Sodom. Here are the two options. One is called Baba Draw, and the other is called Tahamam. By the way, the word Ta here is odd. Because all throughout the Mediterranean area, everybody who does archaeology says tell, tell Dan, tell this, tell that, you know, T-E-L, which means essentially a, a place that's a mound. 
to mound is built up, humanly built up. It's not caused by a, some disaster or, or maybe creation, you know, or whatever. It's just something that's been built up over time with human populations. That's a tale. For some reason, the Jordanians want to use the word tall. So we do use uh, tall for Jordan only. <laughs> so uh, tall Hamam is right on the other side at the tip of the Dead Sea at the top from Jericho. So you had two important cities that are occupying a very close proximity. Can you understand that? They're just right across from each other. And they could have gone and gotten all across very easily. I mean, uh, of course, at that time, the, the Galilee, uh, you wouldn't go through the Dead Sea. So the Galilee, uh, excuse me, the, um, the Jordan River, uh, it would be coming down into the Dead Sea, but it would be rushing. And so Jer- uh, Joshua parted the waters, right? You know the story when they came across with the ark before they went to Jericho. And so... Um, it would be easy to go back and forth, generally speaking, for people. Read this with me, the ancient city of Sodom. This is, this is a fascinating study about the whole question of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I have been, if this in fact is a correct view, and I think there are reasons for it, and you may want to write down these things if you have a pen, uh, because there are reasons why I think it makes sense. And we'll talk about those reasons. Uh, from this passage we'll be looking at. But you have, um, you have the whole concept of, of a city that in the 19th century and before, people tended to think was Sodom. Because one thing that was immediately evident when they went there is that you have a large mound that would have been a major city and you have all the way around this large mound, just, uh, you know, we're talking about just like a, a mile or so away or two miles away, a bunch of little small cities, little mounds that would have been small communities. So when it says about the idea of Sodom and the cities that, that surrounded it, and the more prominent one was called Gomorrah. But there were others. Gomorrah is a little larger. So these were the two prominent ones, and the other was just little bitty little communities. It's where you'd have a gas stop in a, in a, in a store, you know, and probably a guy with a flag to tell there's somebody coming, you know. Anybody ever see the Lord of the Rings when they get up there and they burn the stuff, and for miles around people can see the, and they just pass it on? Am I, am I the only one who watch these movies? Uh, anyway, if you saw Lord of the Rings, you'd see how they did that. You know, you could... Give it, you couldn't call, but you could light a, uh, something that could be, could be seen by the next village and the next village, and, and that gave a warning that there's an army coming. Well, that's what they did in these days. They didn't have any other means to communicate that way. So let's look at the Bible before we move into this, to uh, talking about the archaeology. Abram, this is before then he had this covenant with God. Anybody know what chapter that comes from where the covenant cur- occurs? 15. Chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram, and he becomes Abraham, because he becomes the father of many nations. But Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, all that he had, and lot with him into the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So God is not against having wealth. I guess it depends on what you do with it. Okay? He, I, I did, by the way, one time buy a lottery ticket, and I said, God, if you really want me to be wealthy, this is your opportunity. 
And I didn't win, so I felt like that maybe God wasn't wanting me to be wealthy. But anyway, Abram was here, and he went on his journeys from the south as far as Bethel, which means the house of God, right? And something special happens there. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Please do not say, I I grew up with people saying, and Ai, no, it's not Ai, it's I. So... Uh, you have Bethel, the house of God, and I, to the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. There Abram called on Yahweh's name. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks, herds, and tents. The land was not able to bear them, that they might live together. Now remember, Lot was his nephew. And as a good nephew would, he's always looking out for the concerns of his, of his uh, uncle. And so when the time comes, we find out what happens. Uh, They had problems between their herds getting together and the servants that each of them had getting into broils and fights and said, we got to do something about this. So it says that they couldn't live together. There was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's or Abram's uh, livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites lived in the land at that time. Now, the Canaanites and the parasites, I, I really quite honestly can't tell you what a parasite looks like. I know what a parasite looks like, but not these guys. And so the fact is the Canaanites probably represent the city of Sodom and possibly even other people in that area because that's what we're talking about. And it surely is not the Ammonites and the, and the, and the, and the uh, other ones that are toward the south. So that may be what they are, but I'm not certain. They lived in the land at that time. Now, there's a reason why that the biblical author at this point, Moses, took the time to say that statement because it's setting the stage for something. Okay? Um, Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Please separate yourself from me. If you go to the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right hand, I will go to the left. That's a pretty fair deal. I'll let you choose first. Now, the nephew had specific interest, as we see in the rest. Lot looked up his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan. Now, the word plain here is a term called kefir. Kefir is a sort of like we use the word mesa in, in Spanish or something. It's a large area of land that is unencumbered. It doesn't have mountains all through it and so forth. Uh, this kefir was the place that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the, of the plain, if you read the text, the city of the kefir. So they looked at the kefir to the plain uh, where Sodom and Gomorrah and all these cities were. And so Lot chose the kefir of the Jordan for himself. He said, sure, I'll, I'll take the first choice. I'll take the nice area that I can have for all my crops. Now, the area that we're going to talk about in reference to Sodom, the place called Ta'ahamam, uh, exists on a plain right there with cities around it even today. Now, they're not inhabited, but the cities were there and built. And, uh, and the land is flat. But something very important, because you find out the cities of the plain were well watered. And you go to this area and go around it, because I've driven around the area and looked at it, 
they have underground springs that come up in the Kefir and takes care of the crops. It's an amazing place. And Lot said, this is a cool deal. I like this. Now, so Lot chose a plain of Jordan for himself, and Lot traveled east, and they separated themselves from one another. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived in the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. He didn't make a lot of progress. But Sodom was without question, if it is in fact where we're talking about, the Tahalamam. And I think it probably is. If it is, then there's a reason for it because it probably housed, it's estimated based on the size of it and what, what's been done, probably about 10,000 people inhabited that. Jericho, in contrast, if you've been to Jericho, I don't remember if any of you have been to Jericho. Jericho is a small mound. It's not really that big. Uh, Tehamam is, is quite large, plus it has a lot of areas that are connected around it that things were built underneath it. Uh, by, by that I mean it was on a hill and you have still portions of the city that occupied places not on the mound. Understand? So this happens at Arad, by the way. You have a, a, uh, in the southern portion of the Negev, you have a, a, in the days of Solomon, you had a major fortress built on the, the mound up high. And then you have a massive grouping where there was a city below it. So it's still part of the same city. One's just a fortress, one is not. The king was on the fortress. Uh, if you know what I talked about the other night when I discussed the issue of the place of Hattusha, the, uh, Hattusha where was the king? Up on the top level. <laughs> I want to be the last one he's thinking. I'm the last one I want to be gotten. <laughs> In other words, I hope by the time they get to me, they're gone. And so you house yourself at the top. So they live in the city of the plain, moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom, and by the way, they don't say a lot about it yet, but the author here, Moses, I think, uh, what he did, he gave an anticipation statement. He sort of throws a little something in there to give you a, a little excitement about what's coming <laughs> as far as what you're about to read. It's a literary form of doing things. It's quite well done. Now, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against Yahweh. But you don't find that all out now. That's just that statement's thrown in. It begins to tantalize you a little bit. What's he talking about? But then he waits and holds you off until a little later before he gives you the facts. So it's a way to write. Okay, let's continue. So we're looking at Mount Nebo right now. Oh, it's working again. Okay, you see that? That is Mount Oztal Ahamam. Now, I took this photo, not with a telephoto lens, I took it with a regular lens, from Mount Nebo, a mountain, uh, oh, 15 miles or so from this, whatever it is, where Moses is thought to have been buried, right? I mean, this is where God buried him, and the area of Mount Nebo. We don't know where. Matter of fact, the author says, till this day, we don't know. <laughs> so, uh, but that's it. Now, I'm going to give you pictures that are more close up but that's taken from uh, probably 15 miles away from there and then we're looking um, Mount Nebo again you notice that the that little place that's at the bottom of those other two areas that again is a, is a tail or a tall there it's getting bigger now you're getting a view for it now remember this is an archaeological site not a well-developed city now <laughs> but there are many levels of this site uh, historically and I think over the years, I've only been there six or seven times, but I think they've had about six, 16 seasons, something like that. 
they worked on this for 16 years, basically. And uh, it's, a lot of work has gone into it. This is taken from several years ago. So um, you had also at the bottom, I did some work not only at the top, where Rena and I basically worked, but in my earlier days of working there, I worked at the bottom to the, to the left-hand side of there because they had what might be viewed as a government building and also a temple. And that's where I was working. So I've got a picture in a minute of me there. And uh, that's where I was working at the time. And, you know, in these archaeological digs, what they do is they, they take squares, and I'll be showing those to you. And you work within a number of squares and, and, and identify every single thing you find according to whether it's the north side, the west side, you know, and so forth of each of the squares. And they take records and pictures and everything so that they can, because you lose the information after you dig more. So what you have to do is take everything you possibly can to preserve the information because if you're going to do, you have to keep going deeper and deeper because you have civilizations underneath. So you may find pottery, you may find the uh, jewelry, you may find all sorts of possibilities. You take them up, identify where in the thing it is, and then you keep digging deeper. <laughs> There's no way to not do it that way, or, uh, you know. And, and so you destroy the upper layers, because the most important thing though is to get to the lower layers, because where you'd have probably less information from history. Okay, so that is another look at it. Here's another look. We go on down. Now this was done by a guy by the name of Liam Rittmeyer. And he has done this for years. He spent 15 years at Hebrew University uh, studying the Temple Mount. <laughs> and he is maybe considered one of the top experts in this area. But he's also quite a good uh, person who does uh, artwork and drawing. And so this is what they depict that the site of Sodom would have been like. Now, I'll go back up again. What we need to do is probably maybe turn that around. But... Uh, see the larger area versus the shorter area, but uh, the larger area to the to the left is probably where the people lived, and the larger and the and the shorter and narrow narrow area at the top is where the ca- the past palace was and where the king of it would have been the king of Sodom, so that's how it was laid out. Does that all make sense to you? And I think the drawing sort of gives us some understanding. Okay. Um, this is a look at how it's vision now that what there's on the other side where you couldn't see, and I haven't got pictures of that, but on the other side where you can see they've actually found the city gates to Sodom. And so what they did, they he drew what is envisioned as probably the kind of thing it was and, and how it would have looked. Now this you can't say for sure, but probably based on the construction and the uh, that you find uh in the dig. Notice you have guards up at top and an elevator. No. It's a flight of stairs, though. Now, working with friends at the E, I don't know what that is. Anyway, ancient site of Sodom. All right? And uh, there's Arena and me with a friend who lives in Albuquerque. And he's been doing this for many years, working on the site. Uh, he works with the major archaeologists of the, of the group really a fine person now here's me you'll never recognize where i am but uh i'm digging there and i just wrote that up there for you where did they say the treasures were hidden (laughs) and there's a sense in which you do have treasures in archaeology but they're just not the thing like gold and frankincense and myrrh usually 
Well, you might, but usually you find more things like bronze and pottery and such, clay, and and you do find some things that uh, that are stone. And what you always look for in archaeology, this is something you can record. The most important thing to find of all the things you find in archaeology, the most important thing to find is an inscription, a writing. You can discover more information from writings than you can anything digging around. Uh, so much of what we have is from inscriptions, identifying people's names and places and and other information. So I just thought that was funny. We we dug out there day after day after day in these little trenches like you see and just keep digging down, looking for things. If you find it, you got to register it and all this kind of stuff, a fun ex- experience. So, uh, no, it's actually sort of hard work, but somebody has to do it. Now, here's the way it looks. Again, this is actually, I think, was, Arena, I think this, I believe, if I remember correct, this may have been either the kitchen area or outside of it. It seems like it was close by the palace, and I'm, I'm trying to remember. But um, you have these little, these little areas that have uh, walls around them, and what you did, these are, you, you had to dig down and dig all of this out, and then it's obvious where the walls are. You don't know that immediately. What you see is ground. And then it's as you look around and you start hitting things. Oh, that sounds solid. It's not dirt. You dig a little bit. Oh, this is a wall. And that becomes important for helping you understand the structure. Well, that's that's about Taha Mom. And uh, it's, it's a very good site. They've actually stopped the digging there for right now. And after 16 seasons, they're basically writing all, all the data up. That takes a long time. I don't know if you know this, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, after they found them, people wonder why it happened. But it was about 40 years before they were all published. You'd say, that's a long time. You ought to know how this is done when you find something. Some, they had lots of little scraps, just little pieces. And they had to figure out, now, where would this go? It's like a gigantic puzzle and it's not as easy as the ones you buy in the store (laughs) and you're trying to figure out among all these scrolls and all this writing does this fit anywhere (laughs) because you're trying to make sense of it you're reading something maybe that's a piece or maybe big that's it's got a lot of writing and you can read it if you can read the hebrew and then if you come to the end and it's sort of torn off then you don't know what it says onward you can't put the whole thing together so it's a lot of work, and you look for little pieces that might be part of that so you could begin to fit it together again. So writing is very important in providing information. But that's an introduction to the idea of Ta Hamam. And uh, the, the, uh, the next section I want to deal with uh, requires us to... Uh, well, let me say something before I pass off since I'm at Sodom. I didn't get into Sodom much. There's a... A lot of things to say about the history. Let me tell you a few things that have happened recently. That might be good to give you. I don't have any pictures of it. There are articles having been written if you want to read them. But uh, it was discovered just uh, uh, just a few years ago. It was discovered by people that are involved in uh, meteorology and uh, astrophysical kind of stuff. There was a massive there was a massive uh, meteorite shower similar to what happened very close to Arena's home in Russia. Uh, I don't know how far you were from that, but there's a forest away from it that a meteor hit Russia several years back uh, within our, you know, the last 15, 20 years, whatever it is, 30 years. 
Huh? Okay. You know the year it was? 2012, maybe. Anyway, a major meteorite shower. Well, they found a major meteorite shower had occurred in this area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if I remember correctly, the biblical text indicates that God brought down from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah uh, fire from heaven. And the uh, Quran, which I don't always trust, obviously, but it does have some things it says. It says that God brought stones down from heaven. So whether you want to say fire and brimstone, which would have included stones or stones, the fact is that there was a major meteorite shower approximately the same time as we're thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, which adds to the credibility of the biblical text on this. I don't need that to believe the biblical text, but it's always fun when you find something that maybe adds some information to it. So that has been found. We listened to an entire presentation of that, I think, last year by people who had been involved in it. And when this year we were involved, the friends that we developed, I think that one of the guys was actually involved in that work. So that's pretty cool that we've, we've seen something that may substantiate the fact of the God brought judgment down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, there's one thing that some people believe leads you away from um, the uh, acceptance of of Sodom being at north versus south, and that's that they found a city uh, in southern Jordan that bears a name that's very similar to what we have in the north. And I'm trying to think of the name right now, and it just won't come to my brain, so I can't think of it. Seems like it starts with a Z. But whatever, whatever's Zora. Thank you. I just couldn't get it up. Uh, Zora, Z-O-R-A-H, um, is in the south. And they say, well, it must be in the south where, where we're talking about. Except that when Lot left Sodom and Gomorrah with his two daughters and they moved south, it's not uncommon for anybody who's lived in one city, let's say he's in Britain or some other place, or even Israel or wherever, and move to America, and they have all sorts of the same names. For example, I mean, you know, we have uh, any number of names of various cities in the United States, small and big, that bear names of places in other countries. People do that all the time. So it would not be an unusual thing to move and you may retain a name uh, that had been in north and when you move uh, south. So that has a, given me a lot of uh, uh, acceptance of the viewpoint based on that. I don't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Okay, now, the ancient city of Petra. You can imagine what Petra means. Anybody know the difference between Petros and Petra? That's a thing in Matthew 16, right? You are Petros, a little stone. And upon this Petra, I will build my church, which is a massive a massive stone structure. And if you look at Caesarea Philippi, you have a massive rock, I mean solid rock behind it, just out of this, out of this ground. And Jesus was standing, you're Petros, a little stone, but out of this confession that we have, it would be a Petra, a large structure of, of, uh, of uh, rock. So when it says Petra, you're going to see that there is large rock at Petra, lots of them. <laughs> and so that's why they call it Petra. Now, Petra comes from 
the discussion of the Edomites at in the uh, the book of Obadiah. Anybody ever read the book of Obadiah? If you read through the Bible, you read it. But it's not one that people often preach on or think about much. They usually find some other favorite book. I actually took a class when I was in college on the uh, the prophets. And by that, I mean the, the minor prophets. And so the person I had, his name was uh, Billy P. Smith, Dr. Billy P. Smith, an excellent teacher. And we went through the prophets. And that's just about the time, by the way, that we were getting ready to um, send our first ship into outer space. And that's important for this passage, as we'll see, because what some person had argued in the newspaper about going into outer space. Ready? Here it is. The vision of Obadiah, this is what the Lord Yahweh says about Edom. Now, Edom, the Edomites are the ones who are at Petra. You, I don't know you could ever call them Petra something. You know, they were the Edomites, but they lived at the place that it, we call Petra, the, the, ma- the massive rocks. We have heard news from Yahweh and an ambassador sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, you're going to see this in a few minutes when I show you the pictures. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, the Petra, whose habitation is high, high rock, (laughs) who says in his heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you mount on high as the eagle, and though your nest is set among the stars, I will bring you down from there, says Yahweh. Believe it or not, a person had an application of that in the newspaper says God has promised in prophecy in Obadiah that even though we try to get into outer space, that God will bring us down. It's amazing what people do with Scripture. I really don't think Obadiah has anything to do with going to the moon or around the earth. Maybe you do. But I find people make amazing applications from the text that have nothing whatsoever to do with with the context. He's not discussing rocket ships here. But he is discussing pride in people's hearts who live high above where people can be. They felt very, very safe because they lived high. We'll see why. Because when you get to Petra, this city, even though there were people that conquered it, the Romans attempted to conquer it and were not successful, believe it or not. Probably had to do with their method of warfare. They they used a different method. But since they could not conquer it in their initial efforts, what they did is they closed off all their their caravans that would come by and provide goods. Others cut off their access to various kinds of things like food and whatever else would come in caravans. So the Romans had a way to deal with it. You want to deal with us? Well, if we're not going to beat you one way, we'll beat you the other. And that's exactly what happened. Eventually, uh, Petra had to sort of give in at that point. Remember that King Herod saw himself as connected not only to Judaism, but also to the uh, viewpoints over here of the of the Nabataeans and so forth that were at, that were afterwards this period of time uh, in Petra. So he was sort of a mixed breed. One, that's one reason why the Jews didn't like him, but there, he gave them many other reasons also. 
Okay. Now, let's continue on our st- look at it. See, so you says you're you're in the clefts of the rock. Your habitation is high. Nobody can bring us down. God says, though you mount on high as the eagle, and though your nest is set among the stars, and I don't think he thinks they're up in the stars. It's a figure of speech. I will bring you down from there, says Yahweh. Won't I in that day, says Yahweh, destroy the wise men out of Eden, Edom, and understanding out of the mountain of Esau? Key concept. Now we get some information. Who are the descendants of Esau? They, in fact, were the Edomites. And so, your mighty men, Teman, will be dismayed to the end that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter for the violence done to your brother Jacob. Do you notice that? He's going back to a, an issue that had happened sometime earlier. And he says, you did certain things to Jacob, and now you're going to get your reward for it. Shame will cover you and that you will be cut off forever. And the day that you stood on the other side and the day that strangers carried away his substance and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. In other words, they were complicit working with others against Jerusalem. Even you were like one of them. But don't look down on your brother in the day of his disaster and don't rejoice over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Don't speak proudly in the day of distress. Don't enter into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't look down on their affliction in the day of their calamity. Neither seize their wealth in the day of their calamity. There's a lot of calamity here. Don't stand in the crossroads to cut off those of those who escape. Don't deliver up those who remain in the day of distress. For the day of Yahweh is near all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will be returned upon your head For as you drunk on my holy mountain, came up to Jerusalem, so all the nations will drink continually. Yes, they will drink, swallow down, and will be as though they had not been. But in Mount Zion, that's where Jerusalem is, there will be those who escape and will be holy. The house of Jacob will possess their possessions. The house of Jacob will be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau for stubble. In other words, they got the flame and the fire, then I guess who's going to get put on fire? Their stubble. That's what you burn with. They will burn among them and devour them. There will not be any remaining to the house of Esau. Indeed, Yahweh has spoken. Uh, he's aggravated here. Very, very strong, strong language against Edomites. They actually end up, Esau was cast of the land in the 5th century B.C. There's no remnant that we know of anywhere. So you have the house of Jacob, you have this thing that goes back for a while, you know, and you have Esau, the whole struggle between Esau and Jacob is accentuated here in Obadiah that you have done wrong to Jacob and you have considered yourself prideful and I'm going to bring you down. And God does. Now, thus my shirt here. I actually have a shirt like this. It's available on the Internet. I'm not selling them, <laughs> but I love it. These, they have a listing, civilizations, nations, and empires that have tried to destroy the Jewish people. You see those bunch of X's? <laughs> lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people 
have over the years tried to destroy the Jewish people. They got one at the bottom called Iran with question mark. One day that will be a big X. The Jewish people, the smallest of nations, but with a friend in the highest of places. Uh, the fact is God has a plan for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants. He laid it out very plainly in chapter 12 and 15 of, uh, of Genesis, also other places throughout in Deuteronomy and so forth. It's amazing to me that so many people, we have so much anti-Semitism going on today. And there are reasons for it because we, our nation has turned more and more against learning the Bible and becoming Christians and so forth. But even some Christians who have views that don't recognize a future history for Israel say they don't have any right to anything anymore, which, you know, I'm sure you, being here with Robbie, I'm sure you've gone through all this stuff in the Bible. But it's very plain that God has a future. And I just saw that shirt when I was thinking about it. I thought, oh, I bet you they would be interested in this. I bought one, and it's uh, pretty cool. Now, I want to say something that follows this passage in Obadiah up, though. You have the teaching of the Apostle Paul on the descendants of Jacob and Esau in Romans 9. I don't know if you ever saw this. You read Obadiah, and then you read Paul in Romans 9, and you say, huh. Paul is thinking of some of the same thing that Obadiah is when Yahweh gives instruction to Obadiah. Because what you find out that he can contrast Esau and uh, and Isaac and the ones that come from him, right? Guess who came from Isaac? Jacob, right? Okay. So he becomes the continuer of the whole promise of God, uh, talking about Rebekah and Isaac and going on down, for being not yet born, having not done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. God said, I have a plan. I don't have to worry about whether my plan will work. I'm God. <laughs> and so what you have is that God knows all things, is all wise, makes every right decision, and has the power to do everything. Um, it's amazing that, that some people today just really believe that, that apparently God is limited, but he's not. He's unlimited. And so he says, you know, my purpose will stand. Just like he told the people with Obadiah, it's going to happen my way. And people who think they can raise up their hand against God and say, well, we're going to make it otherwise, they've got a funny, <laughs> they've got, got a strange situation coming. Paul says, the elder will serve the younger, even as the written, Jacob I love, but Esau I didn't like as much. <laughs> I hated him. Matter of fact, he showed his disdain for Esau at the end of the book, he says, all of you will perish because of your deeds, which is interesting. Well, let me do some archaeology stuff with you. I'm going to give you some stuff from Petra. I'm watching my time. Uh, we could talk a lot about Petra. It's a fascinating place to be. How many people have gone to Petra? So several of you have. Uh, it's a great place to visit. Uh, I think there are some biblical sites that are probably important to do before you do it but it's a great great site and what you do you can actually go and have an overlook of see what petra looks from the hills you can look down on the whole cliffs of petra and you can't see what's going on inside but you can see the structure that you have there 
And there I am uh, standing on the ground above all that. You'll never guess who that is, but uh, there he is. You ever seen that guy? I love that one. I keep these purposely. <laughs> but anyway, he is, he is, uh, he's going on there. You have different ways to go into what is called the seek, this tunnel way that's not, it's not like a, a, a cavern because it had, it's free up above. But it was, by the way, if you came in there, they had people above to drop stuff down on you. That's the same thing that Judas Maccabeus did against the, the Greeks. Antiochus, and here's the fight with that Maccabeus, Judas Maccabeus. Uh, they weren't used to it. They were used to a, a way to write like the, like the Greeks did. And they would, you know, use phalanxes like the Romans did later. And so the Romans would come through there in groups like that. And the people above Maccabees, you know, uh, Judas and his uh, groups, would drop stuff down and shoot down and throw arrows down. The people, that's why he won his battles. He used a different strategy. If you caught the Romans or Greeks, either one, on, on a field of battle, you'd lose. But this is much more of an uh, independent kind of thing where they accepted a new way to do battle. And this is the same thing, by the way, that the, the people at Petra did against, against the Romans and against others. Anyway, there's, there's him. And, and not to lose here, I had a horse too. But you had different ways you can go into the seek and, uh, and go out to the other end. But uh, here's one way you can do it. A lot of people do it this way. It costs you $10 to go in and out if I remember correctly. But uh, there's the one way to go. If you don't walk, it's quite a ways to walk in. There's the seek, S-I-Q. Remember that? I have no idea what that means, but I think it refers to the fact that you have this open cavern area. I've never checked that out to see, but the, uh, Petra's a fascinating place because this uh, kind of stone is really such a beautiful stone. I always tell people... you. I wouldn't normally say this to you, but be sure and take pictures in the restroom. Because when you go in, they're just gorgeous the way the thing, the, the rock formations in there and the, 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 how they blend together with colors and such. It's an amazing area. So these are not ca castles. These are not caverns. These are, in fact, usually most of them are tombs, beautiful tombs in the area. Uh, I couldn't figure out where to put that. I don't know if I turn it around or up. I was looking. I kept trying to figure out how it was. But you can see how the the, the various colors and, and the waves that go through. It's a gorgeous area. Uh, here's on the outside. By the way, um, there are two ways to get into Petra. You can go through the Seek, which everybody does. With one group I took last time I was there, I said, let's go on the other side of, the, of Petra. And we actually went and found the place that if you were, you saw the what they call the treasury, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Anybody in this, anybody here see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Just a few of you. Well, if you, it's really a good movie. But what you see, it looks like when you go in with Indiana, they went into here, they came to an end, and then they had to come back out and leave. What they didn't show you in the movie, if they'd turned their camera around like this, you'd have seen that. Once you got here, then you go down that way, and you go down that way, and you, you go down that way, and you go for miles. <laughs> you know, it's not, a, it's not a closed area. And if you turn left, you see steps you walk up, and you actually go over an area and go down into some of the places that I found on the other side. I didn't even know it was already there until I went and looked at it, but I took some pictures of it 
on the other side of the mountain. This right here is part of the seek. Notice the big, uh, there's lots of light, and you walk on two sides. The things that you see on the side here, these are waterways. And by the way, if you were to cut off the water, it would be bad. But uh, this, this furnished water to the place. Uh, you notice right here, those are steps that go up to right here. Do you see that? These steps go right up to here because the, the temple, not, not the temple, what they call the treasury, which is not a treasury, it's a, it's a tomb, it's right over here. Uh, this right here is on the way inside the seek. You'll see there, and it's never changed. Nobody's ever fixed it. <laughs> but this was a cavern. This is a guy uh, leading a, a, some kind of a, a camel originally. And so, uh, but it's all basically fallen apart. There's the end of the seek when you're going out to what they call the treasury. A little bit bigger. So the other way. Let me get there. Now, when you come out of the seek into this open area, you have, you've barely started when you're in Petra. By the way, you can go into Petra, go down the way, all the way down here, look at all the stuff, turn around, keep going all the way down this way and up, and there's stairs that go up for a long distance up to a, a monastery that was put there years later. Uh, very few people go up there. It's a lot of climbing to get up there. Anybody do it? You did. You know, I have never done it. I was tired by the time I got down there. <laughs> I have to have you got pictures. I'd like to see the pictures because I've never made it there yet. But anyway, um, the fact is just shows you about the people and coming out of the seek, this opening. And you'd be if you were watching this, you'd see the temple behind you, as they call it. Or actually, I keep saying temple. I don't mean temple. I mean the tomb, the tomb behind you, which they call the treasury. Now, here's what the so-called treasury looks like, and that's what it was intended to be in Indiana Jones. Remember, you go inside here, and you got all sorts of things. you got this thing that cuts people in half. you got all these funny stuff you walk across, and, and then you have to walk across a, a blind. You have a what looks like it's, it's not there, but it's invisible until you step on it. Remember all that the stuff in the movie? Well, go see the movie. But he gets over there and finds this guy that's been waiting for him for about 500 years. <laughs> but, but anyway... Uh, this is not any of that. You, you can go inside here, and I'll show you sort of what it looks like. But first of all, I want to show you this. Uh, what you have here is uh, the treasury on the outside, and people over the years have taken pot shots with rifles against this, and I'll show you. At the top, there was a legend that developed when people had rifles and such over years, probably 1800s or whatever it was. They, would, they thought that there was actually, if you could somehow hit this stuff so it would it's hollow and would open up and there's there's all sorts of treasure inside probably coins and gold and so people were trying to get into this place and if you look at these right here these are gunshots these and these all sorts of things they shot trying to make them open up <laughs> so that's never here's another example of what we're saying this is inside. Isn't the blending of colors very, very beautiful? This is how it's all the way through this this uh, uh, particular tomb. All the tombs have this stuff like this, but they're all different. That's a temple that, as you're getting to the very end. This is about where, the, where you start climbing up to go up to the monastery. Another look at it, just different angles. All these things are largely tombs. Now, there's a, if you want to take a taxi... Instead of using the horse-drawn carriage, you can take this one. 
Anybody here ridden a camel? You have. In here? Okay. The only time I rode a camel is when I was in uh, the uh, the desert uh, in uh, close to St. Catherine's Monastery in, in the Sinai. And we started at midnight at night riding a camel up for several hours up to the hills through the areas and finally to a place that we got off and walked about, I don't know, a thousand steps or so to a monastery. Same thing. And the monks at St. Catherine, and when this was done in the 4th century, there were about 500 monks there. Now there's about 20. But, uh, and I had the thing on my ears and listening to music all the way up with the camel. And I learned how to ride a camel. It don't ride it like a horse. <laughs> but if you're really, if the camel does a good job, you give him his reward. And by the way, I, uh, they love this kind of drink. Uh, I was told by the guy the next year I went, though, he said the camel bit me. And I said, why? Well, I gave him some beer to drink. Seriously. And so the camel bit him. He didn't like it. <laughs> there I'm looking into uh, going out of the, uh, you know, and have a ways to go to get out of, this, out of the area. But you have some other places. I'm going to move faster. I'm looking at the time. But uh, Petra is obviously uh, a big rock. You can see rock, 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 and it's high. And it was very good protection in those days. Wouldn't do any good today. A helicopter would get you or something, you know. But in those days, it was very good protection. And so that's why they had that. Anybody know that person? You know Barbara, don't you? <laughs> that's her. Yeah. I don't know the kid, but that's her. She's very sweet. And so uh, this is a theater that's there, a uh, big, big theater. I think that was built in the Roman period, though, probably. Here's the other side of that place I showed you a while ago where the treasury was, the other side of the wall. You climb up the steps, and you climb down over this. And I found, I found that out when I went back my other time. Let's see if I see anything really interesting left. Um... Uh, I think that's it. Okay, well, listen, that gives you the idea of uh, something about the uh, the people who were in Obadiah. It says you something about the Jacob Esau thing, the Edomites, they're falling out of existence, the fact of how they t- tried to protect themselves but actually lost because they found tremendous disfavor with God. Sort of like the people at Sodom and Gomorrah. They found disfavor with God, too, because they violated the most basic aspects of their humanity. Do you know this? If you look at each of the days of creation, matter of fact, one of these times I come, I may, may give you some stuff on I've been working on in Genesis, but uh, working on a book on it right now with a number of people, but uh, dealing with some questions on Genesis. And if you look at Genesis, you find out that that what happens with God, he, uh, he says on day one and two and three and four and five, each of these like Hebrew says, by a, by the word of God, the 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 heavens were made, right? Okay. And so he says, let there be light, let there be this, let there be water, let there be fish, let there be people, uh, things on the land, animals on the land. He keeps going through the days all the way to day six. And then he does not say, let there be anymore. He kneels down, so to speak, and forms a man out of the dust. That's a different activity altogether than what you see all the rest of the creation week. It's, it's a unique way that God chooses because now he does not only make all these things he can, but he's now making something that's like him. 
And that's a fascinating concept. If you spend some time working, I can't do it tonight because you got to leave. But the fact is, to me, I, when I read that and think about that, I think, you know, it says a lot to do about the concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, and what all that really means. And so that's, that would be an interesting discussion sometime that I've, I've done some work on. Uh, no questions and answers, I suppose, but afterwards you're welcome to do so. All right, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings you bring to us and the information you provide for us. Thank you for working in us, providing uh, the opportunity to come to know you. And, Lord, help us never to be the kind of way that the Edomites and others were, Lord, but always be listening to your will and uh, in recognizing our weakness and your strength and help us to cause your name to be blessed and glorified in the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.